We're going to look here on our outline to begin, and we're going to have you turn to a few uh, different verses of scriptures over time. So if you want to turn to Colossians chapter 4 as a supporting text, that'll be the first one that we look at. Uh, But for those of you that don't know, we just got out of the Gospel of John, so in some sense it's kind of part one, right? The New Testament has begun, there's four inspired, recorded accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We went through the Gospel of John the last two semesters, so we have been through that Gospel... That gospel is not necessarily designed to cover a whole lot of content of his life. If you remember, chapters 1 through 12 cover, or 1 through 11 really cover his life. And then 12 through 21 cover the last six days of his life. So really the book is divided into two parts. John is probably the least descriptive in the sense of the events of Jesus' life than any of the other gospels. So... We have been through his life, or at least the least descriptive part of his life, through the Gospel of John. Now we're going to go through what happens directly after his life. And so, date of authorship of this book, difficult to determine. I read the scholars and don't really trust what they say, but they said 75 AD. So that may be true, maybe not. It doesn't really matter what date it was written. Um, It was written, obviously, where they had a sense of what had taken place during this period of time. And so the author... We're fairly confident is Luke, and there's a few reasons for that. So if you'll turn to the book of Luke, I said Colossians first, but just keep your finger there. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, and you'll notice how he begins this book. It says, and we'll come back to this in a moment, so you might keep your finger here too. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth an order, a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. Okay, so he's writing this to a person. We don't know anything about the person really, other than that his name was Theophilus. Then we turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, and it says this, The former treaty... Have I made, O Theophilus? So the former writing that I made, addressed to Theophilus, and now I'm making a subsequent writing to you, Theophilus. So it seems to be a very safe assumption, and there's more things internally within Acts that identify Luke as the author, but right off the bat, just from the way they start the book, it's almost like the signature introduction. He's writing that to Theophilus, and then here... The former writing I wrote to you, Theophilus, kind of identifies Luke uh, indisputably as the author. Now, who is Luke? So a couple things about him. You you likely know a lot of these things. He's a physician and co-worker of Paul. So we learn that he's a physician in Colossians. We're asking you to turn Colossians 4.14. And then also we learn in Colossians 4.14 that there's something unique about Luke. What is unique about Luke in comparison to the other writers of the New Testament? He's a Gentile. So this is not coming from a Jewish perspective. And that's kind of significant. Because everything else, and so much of the New Testament, is really oriented towards convincing Jewish people that the Old Covenant has been done away with, has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that He is the awaited Messiah that they've waited for for thousands of years. And so... Inside each of these books, both Old and New Testament, 
it just breathes of Jewish culture because that's what they grew up in and Jewish culture is such an imperative part of daily life. Luke's not a Jew. So that whole historical influence on him, an ethnic influence, is not there. And I think we'll discern that as we go through this. Uh, But it it kind of, and in a different version, I was looking it up in the Greek earlier uh, this week, and it's it's a lot more clear there, but I'm going to go ahead and read it in Colossians chapter 4. And let me see here. Verse 11. And I'm going to read it in the NASB version because it it kind of identifies to us uh, the fact that he was a Gentile. This is the only verse I could find that really indicated that he was a Gentile. It says this in verse 11 in the NASB, that's the New American Standard Bible. It says, And also Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement unto me. So he begins in verse 10, just basically saying, acknowledging these people, these workers that were with him. Verse 11, he comes to his last guy named Justice. And he says, of all the workers with me, these are the ones of the circumcision. So they are Jews. And then he continues the list in verses 12 through 14. And he lists in verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician and Demas, greet you. So if everybody in 10 and 11 is a Jew, and those are all the Jews, and then Luke, the physician, is explicitly mentioned in verse 14 as a non-Jew, it seems very, that's the only proof text that I could find in the scriptures that clearly identify him as a Gentile. Right? Anybody got a comment or a question about that or know of another verse that does that? Alright, so we're going to kind of establish the, what I, this is self-generated. So this is me just trying to give a summation of this book of Acts. So don't take this as gospel because it's not. Luke is a two-part narrative. So when Luke is excuse me. Acts is a Luke and Acts are a two part narrative. The dividing point is obviously Jesus' ascension. So the first part, Luke is trying to explicitly communicate to us. Here's all the details of the Messiah's life, and we'll find here in just a moment that one of the purposes that Luke has is to prove. That the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus as the Messiah. And if we had studied the book of Luke, we probably would have seen that as a major theme going through the book of Luke. He's established that at the end of Luke. And now what we're going to see, and if you were to read Luke and Acts as one big group, if you just sat down in one seat sitting and you would read it all the way through, you would notice... Luke emphasizes all these prophecies fulfilled, is trying to accentuate the point that he truly is the Messiah. And then in Acts, as you go and you read the various sermons and the various dialogue that he records, almost all of that dialogue in the first 12 chapters is centered around Jesus being the Son of God and the Messiah and proving that to people. And so Luke seems to have this underlying purpose in the book of Acts. It's not primary like it was in the book of Luke, but in the book of Acts, it's like he's re-emphasizing just slowly or just lightly. Remember what I said in Luke, that he was the Messiah? Now, when Peter is preaching, look at the emphasis. When Stephen is preaching, look at the emphasis. And all the things that he records, he's re-emphasizing some of the points that he made in Luke. And so, to really get the full flesh out Acts... I would recommend go back and read Luke 
see what to you, even if, I mean, piece of advice while you're studying, just write down themes that are jumping out to you. It doesn't have to be anything detailed, but say, hey, I'm going to write down 10 themes that jump out to me out of the book of Luke. And then come back as we're going through Acts and see if you see those things reemphasized as we go through Acts. With the dividing point being Jesus' ascension. And so, if you look in the first chapter of the book of Luke, verses 1 through 4, it also tells us the way that Luke writes. And I really want to emphasize this a little bit because his is unique. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and again, this is, I'm not going to do this all the time, but these were a little more clear. In the New American Standard Version, it says this. Since many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. I'm going to pause there for a moment. So he's writing to Theophilus, and he says, I know that a lot of people have already written about the things that have taken place among us. So evidently, there were a lot of Christians who had been impacted by what Jesus did in his life and in his ministry, and they themselves, beyond Matthew, Mark, and John, had also written things about the life of Jesus that obviously have not reached us today. And he says, I know that there's a lot of people who have done that. But, just like in here, unless we are all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if all of us were just going to record the events of what happened tonight, likely there would be some mismemories, right? That not every, there would be conflicts in our accounts. And so Luke is telling us, That's one thing that he's trying to address. And here's, keep reading. Just as they were handed down to us, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Okay, so here's what he's laying out before us. Whole lot of accounts about Jesus' life. They're not all running parallel to one another. And so I've undertaken to go interview eyewitnesses of those accounts. I've investigated those, and I've written everything down from the beginning. Now again, that's an important precursor to the book of Luke, because Luke has the most detail about Jesus' birth of any of the Gospels. And so we can see just by the way that his gospel begins that it is different than the other three gospels because he went all the way back to Jesus' birth. He investigated those details of his birth from eyewitnesses from the beginning to corroborate the accounts of what took place. Um, To write it out for you in an orderly sequence. So that tells us something else about Luke. Just the way he words these things. I want to be clear to you. I want to go to primary witnesses. He also tells us these people are ones that are servants of the word. So they're Christians, people who have been saved. And then I'm striving to give you a sequence of events in an orderly way. That sounds like, to me, a physician. Or somebody at this time, at least, who is highly educated. Right, knows how to put together cohesive thought in an orderly framework. Most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So again, the emphasis on exact truth is he's saying, I want to dismiss any variant, variance in the story. 
I want an exact thing that you can depend on. Now, obviously we know this as inspired scripture, but if somebody is just picking up this account and they're comparing it to the ten other accounts, this preface to the gospel should try to bring some, some relief that what I'm reading is something that is not just hearsay. Right? If we take that framework and we read through the book of Luke, you'll find that the orderly, sequential way that he goes about it is very much in line as we go through the book of Acts, the way that it is outlined. You'll notice about the book of Acts, it's in chronological order. It includes a lot of detail about where things are at, who the people are, what their background is, things that would seem to be peripheral to a story. He draws those things in there and then gives them relevance within the context of the story. That being somewhat different than, say, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the first Gospel written. Details are not his strong point. And what I mean is not that he's inaccurate. He just doesn't stress the details. He's trying to get out as many facts and stories about Jesus' life as possible. And so it feels when you're reading it like, here's a story, and then you get whiplash because it goes right to the next story, and then right to the next story, and there's not a lot of transition that explains, okay, Jesus left here and he went to Caesarea Philippi, and while he was there, a group of people, as he entered the city, did this and did that. That doesn't happen in the Gospel of Mark. It does in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to see that as we go through the book of Acts. So I'll pause right there for a moment. Am I got any comments or questions about the purpose as we laid it out so far? Or something about Luke, maybe that I haven't hit on that you want to say, hey, did you know this about Luke or is this true? Anybody? Go ahead. I mean, I read that Theophilus means like lover of God. Mm -hmm. So I mean, could he just been speaking to like the body of people? So I've read that people say that that's... um, He's writing to a like an imaginary person that's really written to all Christian people. That Theophilus wasn't a physical person, but that he was just a what would be the receiver of a pseudonym name, right? Like a pseudonym you're writing under a different name. So he's just writing to I don't know what that's called in literature, but yeah, I've heard that. Um, would he have been a slave also, though? Luke, in those days, I mean, I have read that we're physicians in those days were. It appears in the book of Acts because he does travel with Paul and them on their journeys. It appears not because there's, it's very subtle when you're reading through Acts, but he says at times, when we... It switches over whenever... It does. So it, gives me the, it would give me the impression that no, he was not a slave just because he seems to be freely going with those people. So. Somebody else got a comment or a question? Anybody? All right, so I'm going to kind of put forward a, a few things that I want you to consider as, as what I would think are purposes of this book. And a lot I won't spend a, a whole, or a couple I won't spend a whole lot of time on. But the first one that really jumps out about the book of Acts, if you've read it, is the Holy Spirit. Like, we obviously talk about the Holy Spirit today. But it's different when you read it in the or the book of Acts, right? And so, one of the major themes now, if you, the way I like to think of um, the history of God working in the world 
is in the Old Testament you have God the Father, who is the predominant source to which people communicate. Right? So Moses is going up on Mount Sinai and he's speaking to God. And there's all these appearances of angels that have been sent by God the Father. And the Spirit is there. And there are times, especially in the Psalms, where it references the Holy Spirit. But it's not a, a really prominent part of the Old Testament. Then, there's 400 years of silence. And we have Jesus come on the scene. And this is the most... Um, I don't even know how to put it. This is, I guess, relatable, that God's pre- understandable that God's presence is in the person of His Son. He takes on a human body. He's confined by our same weaknesses. He's just absent of sin. And so God, who it says in Hebrews, God who at sundry times and in divers men has spoken times past through the prophets has now spoken to us by His Son. And so... Those three years of his ministry, Jesus is the one speaking on behalf of the Trinity to the world, primarily. And as we studied in John last last time, in chapters 14 through 16, he tells them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. That there's going to come a point. And he actually, at the beginning of his ministry, he says it. He he tells John that there's coming a day where it's not just going to be baptized by water, but they'll be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And actually, that becomes a relevant part of the book of Acts here in the first couple of chapters. He foretold at the beginning of his ministry, there's coming a day where you're going to be immersed by the Holy Spirit. Now, they have no idea what that means. Like, there's no way they could possibly conceive of what that meant, especially at that point when Jesus had not even really revealed himself to the world yet. But he tells them about a day that's coming. Jesus in John 14 through 16 says, Expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, then I won't send the Comforter. But when the Comforter has come, he'll reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and so forth. And so, after his, here in the first chapter, Jesus, and, and we'll get into this next week, he teaches the disciples his last job that he's doing, is he's the last part of him teaching for 40 days things pertaining to the kingdom of God, is what it says in Acts 1. And then they're standing there, and he ascends. The last thing he tells them, go into Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. So they go and they pray and they wait. And then as we know it, the day of Pentecost comes. And it's when the Holy Spirit descends in a way that has never before since. And so then we start seeing what, I mean, I would in a loose way call crazy stuff happening, right? That there's these fire that appears that look like tongues and... Men are, have the ability to heal people and they're speaking languages that they've never studied before and they're interpreting languages that they've never learned before and they're doing all this crazy stuff from our perspective of the Holy Spirit. And that's really carried out in a large part of the, the, the first part of the book of Acts. And so there's a lot of denominations today which are really confused about this part of the Bible. And Somewhat justifiably so. And so what we can't do is we can't just cut out you know, chapters 1 in the book of Acts to we'll say chapter 5 where all these things are happening and then base our doctrinal creed on this and try to recreate it here. These events are happening within a context and we'll talk about that here in a moment. And so what we want to do is understand the work of the Holy Spirit 
in the church at the beginning within a broader context. And that's what the book of Acts does. It explains to us, what are all these gifts about? Why are they doing all these crazy things from our vantage point? Why don't we have these things around today? And I think a a broader understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit here will help us to understand the work of the Holy Spirit now and why they're not the same. You didn't follow anything I just said? We'll get to it. Somebody have a comment about that first point here. All right, we've already mentioned this real quick. Uh, how Jesus fulfills the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament is kind of a subtle theme through the book of Acts. Actually, in verse 1 of Luke that you've got above, I bolded and underlined the word accomplished. That word in the Greek is fulfilled. So it actually says, since many have undertaken to compile an account of the things fulfilled among us. Well, if something is fulfilled, that means it was predicted beforehand. So it could be fulfilled today. So, part of the book of Acts' purpose is to relate those things fulfilled from the Old Testament. Number three, the history of how the gospel spreads so rapidly, rapidly to the Samaritans and the Gentiles. So, this is you and I. This is us. So, how is it that the people of God for thousands of years are confined to one ethnicity primarily? Not exclusively, but primarily. That the ministry of Jesus comes... And it's predominantly done among Jews. And there is this stringent division between Jews and Gentiles. And then all of a sudden, we're all in one body together, worshiping together. How did that happen? A thousands of years of separation. The book of Acts gives us a direct answer to that question. Um, other things we pick up from the book of Acts. How the early churches lived, ministered, and performed mission work. So... Any organization is benefited when they understand how the people function when it first started. What did people do? How did they live? What was the culture? What were the expectations in the inaugural years of the church? Fifth one, something we can learn from today. A theme is successful missionary journeys. Is there a template in the book of Acts for doing mission work? I would say yes to that. It's in there. And then a very simple division that we can kind of keep in mind as we're going through this is the first 12 chapters, I'm going to say the main character that we follow is Peter. Chapters 1 through 12. There's one exception to that, and that's chapter 9. I guess there's a couple, but chapter 9 introduces what chapters 13 through 28 will follow, and that's the Apostle Paul. So just for my, and there's exceptions to it, but simple reference points in my brain, chapters 1 through 12, Peter... Chapters 13 through 28, Paul. So when you're trying to think of an event in somebody's life, Peter almost never comes into play in the second half, and Paul only comes into place in chapter 9. That's his conversion. And then he goes quiet and doesn't reappear until chapter 13. And so, again, a couple broad themes that came to my mind as I was going through this. Somebody have a comment you want to make? Maybe a theme you want us to watch out for or something you've always drawn from the book of Acts. All right, so we're going to set kind of a template for a doctrinal approach to this book. And I'm just going to read this last bullet point where it says normative versus narrative. And I want to make a few comments about that. It says this. The book of Acts is a narrative which records unique events of early church history. 
Some religious denominations mistakenly and unsuccessfully attempt to replicate many of the supernatural workings of the Holy Spirit from the book of Acts. Although we can draw some patterns for scriptural practice from the book of Acts, like performing mission work, collaborating with other churches, the role of the office of a deacon, it is inadvisable to establish doctrinal beliefs exclusively from this book. It is a narrative with the intent to accurately record history, not a prescription for doctrinal norms. Now, what this gets at, and I, and, and I want to make sure you understand me, I'm not saying we can't trust the book of Acts. Here's what I am saying. When you're writing something, if your clear stated and purpose is just to document facts, which is what Luke is doing, I'm going to tell you what did happen. So that's what he does. He's giving us a narrative. Paul, when he writes, he's writing what ought to be normative among us. He's prescriptive. He says in these doctrinal commands, believe this, do this, act like this. And when he pulls in history, it is to further his point that he is making. But the underlying purpose of his books is communicating doctrinal teaching. The book of Acts, that's not the point of the book of Acts. So I think the error that has been made in large part from denominations today is they say, look, Peter had the power to heal people. He was baptized by the Holy Spirit. That must be a precedent that we are all meant to follow. And I would say, you're looking at the book of Acts wrong. It is not prescriptive. It is just documenting what I would call anomalies in church history. And we'll try to bring out over the course of these first few lessons especially, why is it that this first century is unique within the whole history of the church? Why are there rules and precedents which apply here to these people in this locality that are not prescriptive moving forward. To me, the preponderance of evidence seems very natural. And and I'm not going to get into that at the moment. But it's a narrative. It's not a prescription for what's normative. And so um, we cannot take extensive precedent from this book. Some might have a comment about that because I want to make sure that you're understanding I'm not dogging on the book of Acts, you're saying you can't trust the doctrines in there. They're accurate, but many of them are not prescriptive. Anybody have a thought about that? Or maybe something you want to elaborate on that help make that point? All right, two more sections, three more sections, and we'll be done today. It says this. How do we get here? To better understand the radical transformation from the Old Testament religious norms to the New Testament religious norms, it is expedient to read the Gospels and the book of Acts. Jesus' perfect life and atoning death effectively ended Israel's civil and ceremonial law, abolished the heavily regulated division between Jews and Gentiles, and transformed the people of God from a mono-ethnic physical nation to a multi-ethnic spiritual one. The book of Acts reveals the implementation of these radical changes and how the leaders received and propagated these new ideas and practices throughout the early churches. 
Paul's letters can be more easily understood when one understands the history of the early churches described in the book of Acts. So a lot of, a lot of words here, so let me try to explain it. In the Old Testament, we have a lot of rules. To us today, they seem harsh, overbearing, like all of us would be breaking them tonight in what we eat. All of us would likely be breaking them in the clothes we wear. All of us would likely be breaking them in a whole lot of different, if we were trying to obey those laws. And it's extensive and frankly exhausting to read through all of those laws and the strictness with which God expected the people to keep them. And then suddenly, if you were to skip over the Gospels and Acts, and you were to just go through the doctrines of Christianity, which I want to make a point to say this, that's often what people try to do to discredit Christianity today. Is they basically will say, non-believers, it's like you have a schizophrenic God. In the Old Testament, he's angry and he's mad and he's killing everybody. And then in the New Testament, he's saying, love, 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 love. And they'll try to bring out the incompatibility of what they term the philosophy of the old God and the philosophy of the new God. All the while, not recognizing that there is this template that Jesus to the Gospels in the book of Acts gives us to understand the cohesion in both. Why was there such a transformation from one side to the radical other side? And how is that one God preaching one message? Well, the narrative in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts gives us the bridge of those philosophies. Because he is not only saying things, it's not just abstract concept that he's using to connect. He came and lived it. Like he came and embodied the Old Testament, embodied the New Testament, and brought them together in his very life, and then prescribed it for the church to carry out likewise. And so, I feel like that's an important point to note in your own mind, if you know people who are skeptics or critical of how the Christianity stemmed out of Judaism, because they seem like polar opposites in some ways... The bridge between the two is the life of Jesus and the early church. And it fills out how that we, we bridge that gap, or what appears to be a gap to the, to the rational human mind. Part of that gap, or what we learn, or what we're trying to, I guess, point out here in um, the beginning of this, uh, setting the framework for the book of Acts, is that we're transitioning from strict civil and ceremonial law, so... Think of what we do in worship when we go in there and compare that to you coming multiple times a year, bringing animals, me gutting those animals, offering them in a very strict way. There's all these things going on. How can we bridge that? Secondly, how do we bridge what becomes a focus and what I've talked about a lot lately because I've been studying it? This mono-ethnic, mono meaning one, one ethnicity descending from one physical nation are the people of God to a spiritual multi-ethnic family, which is the church, right? Our ethnicities are not separated. I would wish that we had a bunch of Jews that were members here, Jews and their ethnicity. How did we get there? From strict regulation to then this welcoming of both. 
And then, um, I think those were the two I wanted to mention here. So the book of Acts just shows how these things are integrated. Because what we're going to find, just like in modern day, I mean, consider our church. If we had a group of people, let's say over the course of a year, join our church and it doubled our size. And all of a sudden they're saying, let's get rid of that tradition that's unnecessary now. Let's implement this tradition. Let's get rid of that tradition and let's implement this tradition. All of us would probably say, whoa, 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 no, 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 we can't do that. Not only from a doctrinal standpoint, but also just personal preference. And so one thing that's helpful about the book of Acts is it shows that occurring. It shows Peter introducing to the church some pretty mind-numbing changes. And then, thankfully, it shows us the response of the early church leaders and how they progressively implemented considering the Jews and the Gentiles and the Jewish Old Testament and the old ceremonies. How are we integrating all this? And then at the same time, we have a church in Jerusalem who's predominantly Jewish. And then we can go well up into Europe and we have an all-Gentile church. And these Jewish believers are saying to them, you better circumcise people if you're going to be saved. Or we're not going to, in our modern day lingo, we're not going to fellowship with you. How does the church navigate such an explosion and expansion to different cultures and customs And what do the leaders do? And again, in the book of Acts, it's one thing I love about it. It gives us this template to follow. Here's what good leaders do within the body. Here's how they navigate change. Here's how they address controversy. Here's how they introduce um, things that people are hesitant and skeptical about. And what is the attitude of the people? And in turn, what should our attitude be? And I think that is particularly relevant for a denomination that strongly clings to tradition. Right or wrong, I think we could all accept that as a fact about missionary Baptists, generally speaking. We're traditionally oriented, conservative oriented. Perhaps that's the right starting place. When and how do we loosen the grip? Or do we? And I think the book of Acts is a good introduction to to considering that. Somebody have a comment or a thought? I'm leaving you speechless. That's not a good thing. Alright, so another thing that you're probably going to get sick of hearing me talk about because this is one of my favorite parts of the book of Acts. One of the major themes of the book of Acts is the unity of the church. The unity of the church body. The first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, every single chapter has unity as a significant dimension of that chapter. Unity being not, as you've heard me say a hundred times, not the absence of conflict. That is not unity. That's uniformity. Just because we all enjoy eating pizza together and laughing does not mean we're unified. What the book of Acts reveals is that these people, and we'll get to this in a minute, are very active in the work of the kingdom. They're not always agreeing. 
We talked about that in the Gospel of John. Jesus' will in the Garden of Gethsemane differed from the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet, they were unified because one submitted to the will of the other. Not um, not out of uh, not that there wasn't a duty, but in love submitted, willingly submitted, both in action and in attitude submitted. In the book of um, in the book of Acts, and I wrote this down here. It's not in your outline. It says this: unity is in the church body, coupled with spiritual fruit, is proof. Proof, rather, of a Christ-fearing church. So, unity coupled with essentially action. Spiritual action is evidence that the Lord is with us. Division is evidence of the carnal man. And I want you to look real quick at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, because Paul says this exactly. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. Beginning in the middle of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3, one of the primary things he's addressing here is division in that church. And there was a variety of divisions in that church. And just prior to this, he has talked about the difference between being a spiritual grown, mature Christian and being a babe because you're so carnal. Now I want to make sure you're understanding what carnal in this context is meaning. Carnal is not just, I love to go out and do worldly things. Carnal means the natural man, the selfish person in you is the one decision making, is the one living. And so he's saying here, I cannot talk to you as a spiritual, grown adult. I have to talk to you as a carnal babe. Basically, people who just want what they want. That's how I'm having to talk to you. And in verse 3 he says this, For ye are yet carnal. For, here's his supporting evidence, Whereas there is among you envying, strife, and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? So you see here, he's saying in 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, the evidence that you're unspiritual is that you're divided. And he ends it with the rhetorical question. Are you not? Do you walk as grown spiritual men and yet are divided? Explain that to me. And so in the book of Acts, we see... This church, and we'll get to it in just a moment, the favorite part for me, my favorite part of this consideration and this outline is this church is active, super active. And at times, we unintentionally and intentionally cause conflict among one another. But they go about the right way to resolve at every point the conflict in the first 12 chapters. Because God is blessing them in such a way that either they're submitting or God is literally saying, I'm getting you out of here. And I think an evidence of a spiritual church or the evidence that we're truly unified is that we're doing, we're not divided and we're accomplishing things in his kingdom.
Somebody have a thought about this concept or this this teaching? Anyone? All right, the last observation uh, that we'll make about this book that is, for me, the most heartfelt observation. It is known as the Acts, not the beliefs of the apostles. The more I've, I've thought about this and studied it through the, the, the teachings, especially of Jesus, there is this massive gulf between believing something and living something. And the more that I have dwelt on that, the greater the gulf grows. No matter how much you believe it, and you may come up with every argument, and you may mourn with, you may cry with tears and express your commitment and your love for, and the joy you find in, whatever teaching, whatever truth, whatever belief. The embodiment, or to use a theological word found throughout the scriptures, the incarnation of truth is where it really matters. Like Jesus' incarnation, so God coming in flesh, is not only a theological truth, some abstract truth that we know happened, but I think it is a clear precedent for what God expects us to do about His Word. We are to incarnate these truths. Put them, put flesh in them. Put life in them. And my childhood, I didn't grow up around here. My childhood, this is how I interpreted growing up in the church, the churches, the fellowship that I grew up with. You better not touch a drop of alcohol. And if you do, you are the most awful scoundrel ever. That's how I interpreted what was told to me. But then when it came to omitting plain and simple attitudes, like, um, or I'll give you one, to teach our kids diligently the truth about the Word. Embodying an instruction. Suddenly that wasn't that heinous of a crime. Or... I could give you a whole list of examples. I'm sure you could give me a whole list of examples. It just seemed like to me that omitting living out the gospel was considered no big deal. As long as you believed right and you ascribed to certain general moral platitudes, everything was good. And you didn't disrupt things. And what is so convicting to me as I read through the book of Acts is that you read almost you read you read very little about these strong doctrinal declarations and rather you gain the understanding of their doctrine because they lived it and a comment i want to make to our young people is this your life experience is not necessarily indicative of what god wants a christian life to be So almost every kid that I grew up with is not in church anymore. Because they heard all the prescriptions and all the rules. And they saw very, very little of the living out and the life 
that you find when you truly do what Christ commanded in your heart. And what I love about the book of Acts is it is this compelling adventure. Like, the book of Acts is so awesome to me because it's just an adventure. It's the story of what it's like when you don't know where you're going and you just follow the Lord. And you don't care for your own concerns, and you're not worried about your 401k, and you're not worried about getting promoted, and you're not worried about how is this going to happen, and how is that going to happen. It's not about that. It's these people that just said, Lord, I'm going to follow you. And then, thankfully, this path that he took them was not paved with gold. Like, it was a lot harder than the one we walk. And yet, they continued to walk by faith. And they experience, and to me, as I'm reading as a, as a reader, it stirs me because I'm saying, what are they going to do with that? Like, that's a challenge. That's hard. How do you respond to that? You're thrown in prison, and it looks like you're going to die? What do you do? And then you read this unlikely, they're singing praises to God, and everybody in the prison can't believe it, so they're listening to them. And it's like, Wow. If I reasoned carnally what I should do, like if I told you, brothers and sisters, if you get thrown in prison, here's what you do. I can't do that. What you have to do is live by faith and walk with your eyes heavenward. And in every situation, the Holy Spirit is guiding you. In every season of life, there's this subtle, invisible hand And as your life begins to unfold, yes, there are seasons of of, uh, mundaneness. Yes, there are seasons of disagreement. Yes, there's all these seasons, but that's part of the journey. And then you have these challenges to your faith. And then you have these abrupt deaths, which take the breath out of you. Like when James dies in chapter 12, he's the pastor of the Jerusalem church. He's the top dog. At this point in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, Herod kills him, catches him and kills him. And you're like, okay, there's a big vacuum here now. What's going to happen? And then we go to chapter 13, and God introduces this persecutor named Paul. Who by all regards far surpasses the expectations the people could have ever had. And so you see, and here's, I guess the point I'm trying to make. You see, when you live out belief... Rather than trying to coordinate and facilitate and plan and expect and be propelled by success, like here's what a church can often do. Can we have a vision for X? Let's go do X. And so we plan, we prepare, and we set all these expectations as to what's going to happen. And then we get to X event, vacation, Bible school, revival, minister school, whatever it is, and it's a dud. Like it just doesn't work at all. The pragmatist, carnal person says... We failed. We probably better not do that again. And we probably better never take a risk again. Because look at, we wasted all the church's resources and the church's money. And look what happened. That's not what the spiritual person does. Because what if you, God was not so worried about the thing you were doing, but that he's actually working in the heart of the people to learn how to go past discouragement. To learn how to be inspired despite their emotions. Who learn to trust one another even when somebody's idea did not lead to the result that was expected. 
And what God is doing is cultivating character in us, not successful implementation of enterprises. And so the book of Acts to me is this awesome series of events that's just this adventure that they're on. They don't know where they're going. And they say things like, hey, can we go over here and preach the gospel? And the Holy Spirit's like, no, you're not allowed to go there. But I want you to go over here to Macedonia. And they go. They don't want to go there. They want to go somewhere else. They go to Macedonia. And the church in Ephesus is started. And the church of Ephesus is mentioned in the book of Ephesians. And it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. And it's mentioned in church history in Josephus. And all this is happening when their heart and eyes are on one thing, God says, I'm going to direct you somewhere else. And God weighs work because they followed him. One of the things about the book of Acts that I want you to get is maybe, and I, I say this carefully, maybe the, from an outside observer, if you were reading the history of Old Union, does it... Align somewhat with the Acts of the Apostles. And what I mean is this. Is it action-oriented? Is it they were going, they were doing, they were reaching, they were missionary-minded? And I think in some places, yes. But that varies from generation to generation. Some generations, mission work is what they care about, and that's what their heart is set after. And sometimes, yes, reestablishing doctrinal truths. That occurs in the book of Acts. But it is this adventurous story about God's gospel and his people. And I, I love that about the book of Acts. I'm going to read the last thing and I'm done. I'll give it, give it over to anybody who wants to say anything. Reading that bullet point says this, Beyond simply recording accurate history, there is an exciting, even compelling aspect to this book. The early churches are not simply believing, but doing. So they entered Jerusalem where Jesus was murdered and proclaimed the message of Jesus before thousands of Jewish followers from around the world. They confront those responsible for Jesus' death. They fearlessly stand trial for preaching Jesus. They heal the sick. They aid the poor and downtrodden. They confront controversy within the church. They boldly seek new opportunities for ministry. They reconcile doctrinal disagreements with the leadership of the churches. They cautiously welcome a new leader in Paul. They integrate new members from other cultures and ethnicities. They spread the gospel in unreached places throughout the Roman Empire. They are hunted. They are shouted down while preaching. They attempt to convince the intellectual and the ignorant. They suffer shipwreck and are called before judges and kings. And many are publicly martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ. They do all of this and more in the very middle of the pagan and oppressive Roman regime which proclaimed them enemies to Rome. The history of our old church traces beyond 1795 to a group of brothers and sisters who did not only believe the way we do, but were compelled by their deep convictions to action. Their beliefs were not fearfully protected, but boldly proclaimed in the marketplace of culture and thought. As we study this book, pray that God will lead us by the same Holy Spirit and ignite in us the same burning zeal which was said to have turned the world upside down. That's Acts chapter 17, verse 6. Um, so that's my inspirational spew to care about the book of Acts right? and why I think that it's a relevant and necessary study 